Welcome to the Construction User 2.0 from the Association of Union Constructors. In this podcast, we explore the latest labor trends, industry insights, and important issues in the world of construction. Join us for conversations with industry leaders, subject matter experts, and innovative visionaries as we discuss how we are building the world of tomorrow. For those of you just joining this week, this is part two of a two-part podcast special as we're talking to Dr. Peter Phillips and Dr. Kevin Duncan. If you missed last week's, please go back and listen to our amazing conversation about economic research of prevailing wage. This week, we'll be talking a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of PLAs. Our guests again are Dr. Phillips, a labor economist and professor at the University of Utah, and Dr. Kevin Duncan, an economist and professor out of Colorado State. These men are incredible. For their full bios and intros, please go back and listen to last week's. But for now, let's continue the conversation. So I want to kind of shift a little bit, not too terribly far into to PLAs. Professor Phillip, I know you've done a lot of research on PLAs and how they kind of affect crew composition. So based on your work, what do you think the effect of, of a PLA is on, on kind of the crew, crew compositions and apprentices versus journeymen, et cetera? Well, let, let's start by explaining what the acronym PLA stands for. Oh, of course, please. Um, PLA is uh, uh, the acronym for Project Labor Agreements. And Project Labor Agreements are a contract. And they can be found both in the public sector and in the private sector. Now, in the case of prevailing wage laws, those are only laws that apply to public works. In the case of project labor agreements, they are a form of contract that can be found both in the public sector and the private sector. And the earliest project labor agreements that we know of come from the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, the Shasta Dam in northeastern California was built around 1940, and it was built under a project labor agreement. And the purpose of that contract was to set up the working conditions and wages and hours for workers who were going to have to travel uh, from the urban areas, such as the Bay Area, up into this uh, lightly populated corner of California to build this big project. So the idea was uh, to make sure that when workers packed their bags and traveled to that project, they knew what they were going to get paid. And the way that was settled is the procurement agency, this was a public project, and uh, the unions in California, uh, the construction unions in California as a group negotiated that contract. And it set the uh, payment for travel. It set the payment for uh, uh, days away from home, like a per diem is what it's called. Uh, and it set wages and hours of work. And that was partly responding to a practice in the 1930s where, particularly in agriculture, growers would advertise that they had a lot of work in Stockton or around Sacramento or Bakersfield. Uh, and they were going to pay such and such a wage. And people, the famous period where folks were moving from Oklahoma to California to find work, would show up and the advertised wage rates uh, were gone. They got enough people, they could cut the wages. So there was an issue of bait and switch. And that was the initial reason for the development of project labor agreements is to avoid bait and switch uh, in, in the case of large 
uh, isolated projects. But the use of these contracts expanded over time. A second use of these contracts, something that was very common in uh, the construction of uh, large industrial facilities, uh, power plants, uh, um, was to uh, uh, promulgate an assured set of uh, remuneration and working conditions that would attract qualified labor to make sure that these big projects got done. Uh, an example uh, from my area comes from the building of uh, the rehabbing of the I-15 corridor that runs north-south through the Salt Lake County uh, back in 2000 in anticipation of the traffic demands of the 2002 Olympics. And in this particular case, it was a, a $3 billion rehab and three very large heavy highway companies bid on the project. And the winning bidder with the lowest bid had privately um, made an agreement with uh, the local construction unions as a group to sign a project labor agreement. And the reason that uh, general contractor wanted to do it that way is that he knew that there was going to be a lot of other demands for uh, labor uh, to prepare for the 2002 Olympics. And the Utah Department of Transportation had set up the bidding process for this rehab such that all of the profit in that project was built into completing up to specs on time this rehab. And the contractor realized if he was going to meet those benchmarks uh, for completion, both in terms of quality and in terms of delivery, he needed to make sure that he could harvest the best workers in the local area. And the project labor agreement set up the conditions so that uh, the workers looking at that project knew what they were going to get paid. Now, this turned out to be a political football in Utah. As, as you may know, Utah is a very conservative state. And the way the project labor agreement was set up to get a job on that project, you had to at least temporarily become a union member to get those union wages that were built into that PLA. And that upset the state legislature. And eventually a compromise was made so that you could apply to the contractor as well as well as apply to the union. But the union would track to make sure that if you're working for that contractor, you were getting paid the wages and benefits that were in that PLA. So a second purpose of PLA, while the first purpose was to get qualified labor it was, you know, lots of great background to PLAs and how they've been used. And I remember the 2002 Olympics. My family is from Utah, so there was lots of craziness. And, and I remember a lot of those things. But down to, like, do PLAs, how do PLAs really affect that job composition and those opportunities? Well, we have the research on this is fairly undeveloped. We don't have a lot of research on PLAs. We have a few that examine costs, one that examines the effect of PLAs on competition. We don't have formal studies that examine how PLAs affect the composition of the labor force. There are what PLAs will do is they might have 
uh, local hire requirements of contractors. So to participate in it, this might go down to the subcontractors. To participate in it, there has to be 30% or some some predetermined percent of the workforce is going to be from the local area. Some also require that a certain percent have to be enrolled in percent uh, apprenticeship programs or have to, there might be some requirements also on gender or hiring uh, individuals from different ethnic and racial groups. But I'm going to, there hasn't been, a, that information is available, but there hasn't been any research that's really kind of compiled this to look and see across PLAs if there's a uniform inf- impact on the racial demographic characteristics of the labor force on those types of projects. There's, it's just the research is too new or it hasn't been? It's, well, it is, it's difficult to accumulate all that information and process it. What a lot of municipalities do now in, um, in Seattle and in Los Angeles is they have publicly available data on, on a contractor's, you know, on, on those municipalities will have goals with respect to local hire, apprenticeship training, minority employment. And that information is compiled and made public, but it's very difficult to collect all that information to the point where we can say, yes, PLAs in, in Los Angeles are meeting all of their goals. I don't know if you want to, I'm just giving you some background. I don't know if this is going to go into the presentation, but we haven't got a lot. There's a lot of data available, but no one has done anything to compile that information. So we don't know too much about how PLAs affect if they uniformly increase minority involvement in construction. There's some anecdotal evidence, but there's not any, you know, broad-based study yet. Seems like that'd be a, a good dissertation for someone. You know, any listeners out there looking for something to study? So, not shifting gears too terribly, but you know, slight slight turn of. So we have, you know, we have the Davis Bacon, the prevailing wage laws. We have PLAs. Our my own, you know, our own uh, CEO Daniel Hogan responded to a uh, an op-ed a few, um, I guess, months ago now, that was talking about how both of these things actually, you know, are anti-competitive. How they 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 keep the little guy down and they they are non-competitive. But just my cursory non-academic research shows that to be absolutely untrue. But I'd love to hear a far more academic, you know, are PLAs anti-competitive? Well, let's talk about Davis-Bacon and prevailing wage laws first, because we have more research on that. Um, There have been six studies of how prevailing wage laws affect the level of bid competition. One of these studies was in British Columbia, where they have a fair labor, uh, fair wage skills development and fair wage policy. Other studies have been in Colorado, Nevada, Ohio, a total of six studies. And none of them show that prevailing wage laws are associated with reduced bid competition. Now, when we talk about project labor agreements, there's only been one study that examines that, and that's Peter's examination of community college construction in in California, where he found that those projects built with PLAs were no less competitive than projects that weren't. So, you know, we hear a comp- that 
that claim that a wage standard, prevailing wage or PLAs associated with reduced ditch competition, but we're just not seeing it in the data. Now, we haven't got a tremendous amount of studies that examine this, but we haven't found any that suggest that they have. And this would be for research that's been peer reviewed. You know, intuitively, a contractor may think, oh, it's a PLA project. I won't compete on that. So they assume if I'm not doing it, that must mean there's less bid competition. But we don't know if other, if, if the PIA, if other contractors will fill the gap. You know, perhaps a contractor that pays union wage rates that's signatory collective bargaining agreement, maybe that kind of project's attractive to them. So we're just not finding any evidence that these things, and when I talk about evidence, I'm talking about analysis of data that has appeared in peer-reviewed journal articles, we're not seeing any evidence to support that prevailing wage or PLAs reduce bid competition. Awesome. No, that's that's cool. I know that yours, he, he, uh, Professor Dunga was just saying that of the, of the studies on this subject, yours is the one. So I'd love to have you kind of, uh, we were mentioning that uh, we... People like to say that PLAs are anti-competitive, and I, I know that that is sort of what you had uh, researched. I'd love to hear your take on the the, competi- the competitive nature of PLAs. One of the things that uh, Kevin didn't mention about that community college study is that in uh, uh, we looked at about 210 different projects, uh, half of which were PLA projects and half which weren't, and in about 100 of those 210 projects, we had the engineer's estimate of what the project would cost uh, before the bid was let. And in those cases, there was no difference in the accepted bid price on PLA projects compared to the accepted bid price on non-PLA projects in reference to what the engineers estimated the project cost would be. The actual accepted bid price didn't always exactly match the engineer's estimate, but the differences between the bid price and the estimate were not larger for PLAs than for non-PLAs. And that's a, a, a suggestive that uh, the PLA projects were as competitively bid as the non-PLA projects. This is all in the context of uh, states with prevailing wage laws. If it's a public project labor agreement and a state with a prevailing wage law, then the wages on the project labor agreement are going to be very similar to the wages that are required in any case under the prevailing wage law. So project labor agreements do not bring into play different wages compared to non-project labor agreements in states with prevailing wage laws. What the critics say is that uh, project labor agreements reduce the number of bidders. And they do that because they discourage those contractors that don't want to work on a project labor agreement. However, there's no evidence to support that. It's, it, it is an interesting debate that you, that, that it is just a generally interesting conversation in general. The, the, the people that I hear that will talk, you know, the criticized PLAs for raising costs. So, you know, PLAs are so much more expensive. Uh, someone commented on, on one of our socials recently, you know, we want to double your costs, use a PLA 
Can you talk a little bit about the, well, economics of, of PLAs versus non-PLAs, both in the construct of the job itself, as well as, you know, maybe you, you had mentioned that non with Davis-Bacon laws, if it doesn't pay better on the job, there are other social programs. Like, just talk about the general costs and effectiveness of, of PLAs from just an economic standpoint. Remember, a project labor agreement is an agreement. It's a contract. Both sides at the table have to see a reason to sign that contract. And if one side doesn't see the reason, then they don't sign and there's no project labor agreement. So both sides have to see something in there that's attractive to them. Sometimes it has to do with uh, changing the contract relative to collectively bargained contracts in heavily unionized areas. Uh, a classic case was the building of a bridge in the New York City area over a river, and the public agency wanted the work to be done at night when traffic on the bridge is lighter. And the local uh, union contract said, if, if you're going to be working the night shift, you get a night shift differential. And if there hadn't been a project labor agreement, and if union workers were on that job, the uh, contractors uh, would be paying uh, a 50% night differential. But what the project labor agreement said is that this project will be done, it will be done at night, and there won't be a night shift premium. Why did the unions sign an agreement that gave away the night shift premium? And the answer was, there was a lot of work there. And it was a time period where the, there was unemployment on the bench, which is uh, the union hall where the union workers get dispatched. And so the unions are willing to make that concession in order to uh, get that work. Now, not all the unions needed to make that concession to get their work. And so you couldn't go in there union by union changing their collectively bargain agreement. But the project labor agreement is not an agreement between the owner and one union. It's an agreement between the owner and all the unions. And when all the unions got together and negotiated with the owner, they as a group said, this is a lot of work. Let's all get on the same page, not have a night differential and, and uh, uh, go ahead with this project. And so project labor agreements sometimes are a way for unions as a group to make concessions in order to get work. And that's not raising costs, that's lowering costs. No, that makes a lot of sense. How does that compare for them hiring a non-union crew entirely? Because that's that's a, a PLA versus individual CBAs absolutely lowers costs. But what about a PLA or even just going union in general over over a, a non-union workforce? Is there research to to speak to the economics of, of union labor versus non-union? Or like you said, that prevailing wage versus non? You know, this is all very case specific. In the private sector, in uh, building an auto plant in uh, Texas, the owner signed a project labor agreement because he thought that uh, a PLA would help ensure that the plant got built in time and got built in a way that it would operate properly. And for him, the profit was getting to market. And so it, it, uh, uh, the money wasn't in, well, how 
cheaply can we get this thing built and it doesn't matter when it gets built it was more how quickly can we get this built and built right so that we can start producing or assembling cars and so uh, when you start talking about how much some project is going to cost you have to look at where the profit is is it a time sensitive profit or is it a cost sensitive profit and uh, so the calculations can be different depending on those situations. In the public sector, the real key issue is, is it a public job that is also covered by prevailing wage laws? All federal work is covered by the Davis-Bacon Act, which is the federal prevailing wage law. Some states, uh, uh, approximately a little bit more than half of all states, have state prevailing wage laws. These tend to be the bigger states, the more industrialized states, the more populated states. And uh, a lot of rural states, such as Iowa and North Dakota and South Dakota, do not have state prevailing wage laws. Now, in New York or California, you're likely to have projects that come online that are both time sensitive and complex. And those are ideal projects for project labor agreements that customize the agreement with the unions specific to that project. And in states such as uh, Alabama or South Dakota, maybe you don't have the same projects and, and you certainly don't have prevailing wage laws. Uh, and sometimes there, uh, project labor agreements are uncommon, or in fact, uh, in some places such as Utah, uh, in the public sector, the state legislature has prohibited project labor agreements. Interesting. That's no. It's I re- definitely recognize there's a uh, there's going to be always a difference, and in, in every case is going to be case by case. But I mean, overall, we're saying they're not less competitive, at least as as far as your research has shown. And then the the costs are are more case by case. Because they're contracts and they're specific to a project, they have to be case by case. They're recognizing the requirements of that project. When the electrician's union negotiates with the Association of Electrical Contractors, they're negotiating work in general and what should be the wages and working conditions going forward in general without any specific project in mind. In contrast, a project labor agreement has a specific future project in mind, and it's not a negotiation between the owner and electricians. It's a negotiation between the owner and all the trades that might work on that project. So you have a very different environment because you have different people at the table, and they're negotiating in a different way because they're looking at a specific project. And that then opens up the possibility for new areas of negotiation and new discoveries of win-win between the owner and the unions specific to that project. That makes a lot of sense. I get that. I get that. There's a, I mean, so ter- uh, taking a small kind of turn, especially with, you know, we work here, we have a, a project labor agreement that we, we work with a lot as well as, you know, we work with 14 different of the, the building trades. And uh, every year, we're actually just finishing it up and our report comes out next week, we do what we call our labor survey to kind of chart, you know, the, the labor shortage as everyone talks about it. Because, you know, finding that labor and finding, you know, the prevailing wage and the, the project labor agreements and the competitive nature is, is a very big concern for, for a lot of, for, for all of our members. And we talk a lot about the labor shortage. So just kind of short, 
talk to me a little bit, you know, each of you about the labor shortage and, and is there a labor shortage and the economics of all that? First of all, the construction industry is one of the most uh, volatile and turbulent industries in the country. When the economy goes into the boom, construction goes manic. And when the economy goes into a downturn, construction gets depressed. The fluctuations in employment levels and construction vary much more widely than the overall economy or other industries such as mine. I'm in education, higher education. I got my job at the University of Utah in 1978, and I'm still there. I dare you to find a construction worker that started working for a contractor in 1978 and is still there. So there's there's a lot of volatility. And that volatility means that in most instances, you are either in a labor shortage or you're in a labor surplus. It, it, it happens, but it is uh, uh, ephemeral. It's short-lived uh, that the construction industry is in the sweet spot where the demand for labor and the supply of labor are equal. In addition to that, there really isn't one construction labor market. There is a multiplicity of construction labor markets that differ both by trade and by location. So I have a really good friend that lives in Rhode Island, and he has a handyman that helps him with his house. Um, I live in Salt Lake City, and uh, God save me if I could try to find a handyman to help me with my house. And the difference is, at the moment, Construction is in a manic boom in Salt Lake City in Utah, and it's not in a manic boom in Rhode Island. So uh, there's a labor shortage here uh, where you can't find a handyman, and there isn't a labor shortage in uh, essentially rural Rhode Island at the moment. So if you say, is there a labor shortage? Well, there either is or there isn't, depending on where you are and what you're doing. And then there is sort of an aggregate effect that at the moment, the whole economy uh, is in a construction boom, not like 2005, six, but still nonetheless a pretty strong construction boom. So I mean, a question I think I know the answer to, you know, for either is that just due to all the, is there a way to level that out? Is, is there any, is it prevailing wage? Is it, is there a way to kind of make it more consistent or is that just going to always be tied to the economy. I once wrote a book with 10 other scholars who are experts on the construction industry in their country. And we held meetings and it, it was it was like reading science fiction to hear the way construction works in other places. And at one point the British economist said, you know, between 1945 and 1985 there never was a uh, uh, housing shortage in England, and there never was a residential labor uh, construction labor shortage in England. And the reason for that is the demand for housing came from the government. The government built public housing. That was the major source of new residential construction. And it just came in steady eddy every year, pretty much the same. And you could plan for it. And so, yeah, you could get rid of labor shortages in construction, but then it would have to be a construction system that wasn't driven by the market. In the case of the market, it inherently is a boom-bust animal in the construction industry. And the reason for that is 
the building of, of, of homes is the biggest single investment that uh, uh, families make. The building of office buildings, uh, infrastructure, industrial facilities, is some of the biggest investments that companies make. And when it looks like, boy, if we get that thing built now, we're going to make a lot of money because the economy is going really well. Or, boy, if we buy that house now, we're going to make some money because its value is going to go up. And if we wait, we're going to have to pay more. That kind of market thinking leads people to rush in. And at some point, there becomes a tipping point. And now the whole attitude is different. Now it is, oh, boy, we've got to start cutting our expenses. The economy is slowing down. Well, I know what we can do. We don't have to take on that big building project that we were thinking about. Or families start thinking, oh, boy, I'm not sure I'm going to be employed next year. Maybe we could maybe we should continue renting for a little while longer. And so that ends up creating this boom mentality. And then after something happens, you know, the, the government defaults on his debt or something. <laughs> then there is a bust mentality. So I don't think the government's going to default on its debt in June. But if it does, I can tell you right now, in July, there's not going to be a labor shortage in construction. I bet. So, yeah, actually, that cues up my kind of, we need to, you know, sort of wrapping up this conversation. I wanted to talk to you almost exactly about what you just said. You know, each of you kind of briefly, what do the next three years in construction look like? Given, you know, given everything you guys know and all your researching, what, what are the next, what comes next? Let's start with you, Professor Duncan. Well, with there'll be an increase if if uh, the Biden administration doesn't need to compromise with respect to its planned spending, and what was already improved with infrastructure, public construction should increase quite a bit. That growth will be significant over the next few years, so that will create quite a few jobs. Peter, you want to talk about the private sector or? Sure. No, just in general. I mean, that, that's a that's a solid answer. How about you, Professor Phillips? What's coming down the pipe as far as construction goes? Well, I, I just pulled out my crystal ball. I love it. Thank you. It's it's one that you have to shake so the snow inside <laughs> it sort of you know blurs the picture a little bit. Sure. And, and, and given that, I'm in a minority. I, I'm I'm betting that that um, we're going to get a soft landing. I'm betting that the banking system isn't going to implode. I'm betting that uh, the political system isn't going to paint us into a corner where the government defaults on its debt. And if those bets are right, then we're going to see a, a, a gradual slowdown in uh, construction uh, and, and not sort of flip into um, a, a, a bust mentality. And so... I'm fairly optimistic. However, I will say as a caveat, when I walk around downtown Salt Lake and I see all of these office buildings uh, uh, under construction and uh, I, I see lots of uh, multifamily apartment buildings and condos uh, being built, that's all based on an expectation that Utah's population will continue to boom. We're, we're the fastest growing state in the country, both in terms of uh, procreation and also immigration. If I'm wrong, and my daughter says that happens more often than not, then it'll flip. 
and we'll go into a downturn uh, like we've gone into downturns a half dozen times since 2000. I really appreciate you both coming on with me today, uh, both Professors Phillips and Duncan. You guys are awesome insight, just a wealth of information. I mean, this is such an interestingly niche topic. And like you said, it's it's there's not tons of people who research and write about it. So there's always more questions and more interest in, in this topic. And I'm glad that we had you both come on and be able to talk about it. You've just listened to the Construction User 2.0 podcast from the Association of Union Constructors. Don't forget to subscribe to get all future episodes of what is going on and what is current in the union construction and maintenance industry. 